electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. It's 1 p.m. on Wall Street, and Airbnb has still not opened yet for trading. The mega IPO is set to more than double when it does finally open. It priced at 68 last night. It was indicated as high as $155 at one point already this morning. Uh, here's the latest indication. It's now above that, 156.30. That has a decimal point that tells me we're getting pretty close here. We're going to hit the fundamentals, the trader mentality, uh, and more as this is now the second straight day of monster moves for some of the year's biggest and most anticipated IPOs. With me now are CNBC's Dear Jabosa, Leslie Picker, and Dom Chu. Leslie, let's kick off with you. Why hasn't this opened yet? <laughs> it's a very good question, Kelly. I was actually just talking about this uh, with a source on the phone just about uh, oh, 30 seconds ago uh, before the show started. But it's, it's really complicated. Basically, you've got $3.5 billion worth of stock to allocate. So that was step one of this morning where they had to make sure that everybody who received allocations obtained those allocations. Now comes the challenge of figuring out which price to open at so that it's stable, so that you can make sure uh, that the IPO kicks off smoothly and you don't you know, open at the highs and then and then go down from there. Now, Morgan Stanley is the stabilizing agent here. Uh, and, and one of the big challenges that uh, I'm told is kind of taking place in the market right now is this idea that they have a lot of buy orders and not enough sell orders to match with it. So people are kind of waiting out, trying to see, you know, the, the sellers basically are trying to see how far up this thing can go before really showing their hand and, and taking that price by which to sell. Uh, and so that's kind of why you're seeing, um, you know, a, a, I wouldn't say a delayed open, but just it take a lot longer to open this one. Of course, they do have only about three hours to go, but I am told that it was supposed to be about 1.30. Uh, it could be a little longer than that because they just really don't have uh, that exact price at this time. I mean, the clock, is it going to open before the close <laughs> at this point? <laughs> I hope Deirdre, so. <laughs> let me bring you in. Let's talk a little bit about the valuation here. At $68 a share last night, this was a $47 billion company. So you talk about more than doubling that at this point. So we're, we're basically talking about a $100 billion company at the IPO. Yes. And keep in mind that over the summer, its valuation was slashed to about $18 billion. So you've just already, even before it got to its opening trade, the astronomical jump in valuation. We saw a similar thing yesterday, Kelly, with DoorDash, which I know you kept uh, looking at the screens and thinking, how can this be? I think a lot of people have that sentiment. But what I can tell you from, you know, living in the Bay Area over the last four years, almost five years, is that companies like Airbnb and DoorDash, they are able to separate themselves partly because they have been private for so long. We used to wring our hands over the fact that perhaps their best growth days were in the past. But so they have become well-known household names. Um, and if you think that the digital transformation we have seen accelerated amid the pandemic opens up their total addressable market, you think that these trends that they are tapping into are here to stay, then perhaps they are worth this much money, even if that is a huge jump up in valuation. You know, I talked to Brian Chesky earlier this morning about that exactly and asked him about what travel looks like going forward. So have a listen. 
travel is never going to look like it did in January because the world is never going to look like it did in January. And I think what it's going to mean is that travel is going to get redistributed to thousands of cities. And I think people are going to stay longer and they're going to be looking for more intimate, authentic experiences. And anyone that provides that, I think it's going to be a part of this bright future for travel. So, Kelly, there's this idea that perhaps before the pandemic, when people were willing and wanted to stay in hotel rooms, they would be valued more highly. But Airbnb, if you think that people are going to continue to look at home rentals and people are going to continue to order food, perhaps these are the next big giants. Dom, to me, the interesting discussion isn't so much, you know, what was it worth at the start of the year? What's it worth post-pandemic? It's what was it worth last night and what is it worth today? It's the same (laughs) thing that happened with DoorDash. You're telling me this was a $47 billion company last night. It's a $100 billion company 12 hours later. I mean, I don't think so. I'm sorry. What gives? I I mean, so so to to kind of dovetail off a little bit of what, what Deirdre was just saying, so much of the markets is driven around relativity, right? The relative value of something, not just from a time sequence, but also with regard to its peers. And oftentimes in markets, whether it's real estate or the stock market, you look at comparable companies to try to see if there's any kind of evaluation that you can glean from them. I don't know. There's not a lot of, I mean, the comparability is tough. These are disruptive type companies, but, but with Airbnb, it's worth keeping some of these numbers in perspective. At $47 billion, which is what the IPO price implied at 68 bucks, it was already going to be worth more from a market value than Marriott, more than Hilton, more than Expedia, more than Hyatt. At this about $108, $109 billion valuation that is implied with a price around what we're going to see right now at 156 bucks, you're talking about making it worth more than booking holdings and Hilton almost combined at this point. This is one of those situations where if you look at the overall scheme for the travel industry, how exactly does the pie carve up and what exactly is Airbnb's part of that pie? There is a lot of skepticism, not not because of the business model, not because of what's happening with its growth prospects, but just how much is it really worth if the entire travel and leisure industry is worth X dollars? What exactly is their share in this whole process? I would also point out If you look at the way that Airbnb has kind of navigated this whole process, this is a massive way to go through a traditional IPO and still drum up the kind of support that you have from the investor base to bid up a stock to this level. That speaks a lot about the sentiment going around the IPO market as well, Kelly. Yeah. All right, Leslie, before we move along, let's talk about who's going to benefit from this. Mm-hmm. Who got shares at $68? You know, it was it was professional clients. Um, is it also a lot of mutual funds? I mean, are yeah. there is Joe Public getting access at 68? Because look at what happened yesterday with DoorDash. This was so fascinating. You know, in the late 90s, I, correct me if I'm wrong, when these companies were going public, it was the first day of trading where we saw all of the crazy gains happen. And what we're talking about today is all of the gains happened before this thing went public. Book uh, DoorDash yesterday barely budged once it finally listed. It wasn't like it opened and then shot up another 50 or 100%. There was no one in the broader public involved in anything interesting yesterday. It all took place before that thing hit the tape. Yeah, so I was talking with sources this morning who were involved in crafting the book. What I mean by that is is figuring out who gets allocation at the $68 price. I'm told that there were about 500 investors in this book, mostly big long onlys or or the big mutual funds that you referenced earlier. There were some existing owners that did size up. They took bigger positions uh, at that IPO price. Uh, There were also some sovereign wealth funds in the book and some niche technology-focused hedge funds that do tend to dabble in these IPOs. And, And we've kind of talked about the dynamic, and I think this is 
a big part of what we're seeing with yesterday's IPOs as well as Airbnb is that these come at the end of the year. And so if you are one of these long onlys and you hear that this is something that's facing a really good demand, you want into this book because of these pops. And this is the kind of thing, this, these are the kind of moves that can help deliver alpha going into the end of the year because you only have a couple more weeks of trading. And so if you want to lock in those performance metrics for incentive fee purposes, now is the time to do it. And it only gives, you know, a couple weeks for these yeah. companies to really come, come down to earth. No, and that, I think that's that's absolutely the point. Before we move on, Leslie, just real quickly, I mean, if you're in these shares now and, and you own them and you're one of these, you know, big clients, I mean, you is this what the companies wanted? I mean, this is what Andrew yeah. Barry at Barron's and others have been saying, which is, you know, if you really want to get the highest possible price, you know, and raise the most possible money, then do the Google true auction thing that they did. This this hybrid auction was not that. And right. his, his charge is that DoorDash and Airbnb, that this is what they wanted. Yeah. So this at this price, I have a spreadsheet here. They'd be leaving about, you know, they call it leaving money on the table. It's essentially opportunity cost. There's no way other than an auction to price these things perfectly if you're raising money. Uh, but, that, you know, just for, for discussion purposes, they'd be leaving about 45 billion dollars on the table if they had indeed priced at 155.28 like we're seeing now they could have raised an additional 4.5 billion dollars hindsight's 2020 but i was asking a lot of advisors this very question about like you know did you expect it to go this way did you expect to see it pop this much on the first day of trading why didn't you price it higher size it up a bit more uh and they were saying listen you know the the operators the management team the board they really wanted to price this thing where they believe the the true value is especially as they look at their business moving forward. They didn't want to be greedy and price it higher. Um, And this, one could interpret that to be that this is where the board, the management team believes the true value should be and the rest of it is is exuberance. Yeah, and uh, again, the critics would say they want their favorite investors to have, you know, the pop that we're probably going to see at the open today. But we'll talk more about that this hour as this gets closer for trade 155 and 75. That's the latest indicative price. But this thing is moving around a lot now. It's kind of fun to watch. Uh, Leslie Deirdre and Dom, thank you all very, very much for now. One of my next guests says that these recent IPOs are overpriced and luring in younger, less savvy investors. Joining me now, Dan Genter is president of RNC Genter Capital Management and Margie Patel is senior portfolio manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Uh, Dan, I'm referring to your comments there. Why are you, uh, what is your thinking about DoorDash yesterday, Airbnb today, and what's really going on here? Well, Clay, I think what you have is you have a, a very narrow market that's moved. It's been primarily a big tailwind for a large cap growth, and especially for the tech and the nouveau tech. And you have a new generation of investors out there. I mean, it's people that, that are making money. They have cash. They have 401k plans. They're putting money in. And it's a younger generation that's very, very familiar with these companies. They're using their products. And, and to some degree, it's an old school investing, if you will, which is, you know, buy companies that you know, buy companies that you like and that you enjoy and know their products. So they're following that, you know, old trend, if you will. But this generation, for the most part, really doesn't have the capability or the analytical knowledge to really analyze these from a financial standpoint. So they're making decisions based on products and popularity of products, and which is good, but then they don't have really any sense of valuation. And so the, the valuations are becoming somewhat astronomical. 
And I think where you're going to see a pop in the bubble, if there is a pop in the bubble, because sometimes momentum continues for a while, is going to be professional investors mm -hmm. like uh, myself and others that are going to look at this and say, you know, we really can't justify these stratospheric uh, evaluations. And if we're not going to come out entirely, we're certainly going to take some money off the table and pull it back to a, you know, a two or three percent normal position size. You know, we don't want to have a six, seven, eight percent position in these companies, you know, at, at valuations that, you know, they'd have to grow at, at 40, 50 percent a year on a peg ratio basis to sustain. Right. 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 No, and, and that, and we're showing the performance of the Renaissance IPO ETF. We just showed C3 AI. That was yesterday's monster IPO. It's up another 30% today. Margie, I know you think this is not so much, um, exuberance or, you know, investors being suckered, but high risk appetite in the market and the relative scarcity of IPOs overall. Is that right? Yes, there haven't been that many IPOs this year. And certainly when you have an IPO that has a, a catchy part of the tech market, people remember all the tech uh, new issues that came over the last decade, how much money they made, and people want to jump in. So I don't think they look at this as a as traditionally as a price earnings ratio, the revenue growth. They look at it as a scarcity value. And so they really don't put a price on it that a so-called rational investor might be. It's just the way it is with these types of deals. Margie, that said, if you combine IPO funds raised with SPAC funds raised this year, I think we're at about $130 billion, like the most since uh, the, the late 90s. I mean, that is a, a huge sum of money. It doesn't suggest that there's a dearth of opportunities. Well, there's a lot of money to be invested in good investment ideas, but uh, really, I think the cash is much greater. And we've seen over the years, even this year, that companies are washing cash. They're using that cash to make acquisitions of other companies, taking advantage of volatility in the stock market. And so I would say that really it is a, definitely a seller's market and there is a scarcity of companies to buy. And in fact, the number of public companies has actually been shrinking every year, showing you that there's a huge effort appetite to put money in to buy things or to bring public new companies and not that many suitable opportunities. So when you have these kinds of deals, you have this explosion in prices because there's all this uh, hidden demand that didn't know they wanted to buy this until it came to the marketplace. Well, and certainly they're looking maybe to take gains in some of the parts of the market that yeah. have been such uh, strong performers and maybe find somewhere else to park it. Guys, we have to leave it there for now, but thank you both for your thoughts on today's market environment. Margie Patel and Dan Genter joining me uh, with the Dow down about 30 points right now. Coming up, a big day for the future of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine with an FDA panel meeting right now on whether to recommend approval. This, as the UK and Canada have already given it, we've got all the details next. Plus, is the urban exodus an urban legend? Bank of America says all the talk about people fleeing the big cities is exaggerated. They'll tell us why and how to play it. And we are Still waiting for Airbnb to officially open. We'll bring it to you as soon as it does. The latest indicated price around $154. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We're coming off the deadliest day yet in this pandemic with more than 3,000 COVID-related deaths yesterday. This map you're looking at really illustrating the spread across the country with cases in California, Massachusetts and South Carolina, all up more than 75 percent or more in the past seven days. This is as an FDA panel is meeting right now on whether or not to recommend approval of Pfizer's COVID vaccine for emergency use. Let's bring in Meg Terrell for the very latest here, Meg. Hey, Kelly, well, we're just about halfway through this eight-hour-long meeting of outside advisors to the FDA. These are experts made up of folks from the public health world, the scientific world, and they're talking about every aspect of the data around this vaccine. Uh, They will vote this afternoon, sometime between 3 and 5 p.m., and until that point, they are really hashing out a lot of the details about this vaccine, both known and unknown. For example, this morning, the CDC gave a presentation about what information we still need to be looking for as the vaccine starts to roll out. So, you know, once it gets into uh, more and more people uh, need to do things like confirming that the efficacy is there, protecting against the symptomatic disease as expected. That's the immediate question within the first two to four months. Over the short term, they're going to be looking at whether the effectiveness holds up against severe and non-severe disease, answering questions about whether the vaccine prevents infection completely. What is the efficacy across key subgroups? Also, what happens if somebody only takes one dose or takes one dose of one vaccine and one dose of another vaccine. And over the long term, questions like how long does the protection last? Is one product better than another product? And what happens if the virus mutates? So these are the kinds of questions they're going to be talking about as this vaccine rolls out. But as for today, it's the 95 percent efficacy we already know about, the safety we already know about, uh, really talking about all of those things before the vote this afternoon. Uh, Once they vote, it's just a recommendation to the FDA. They can the FDA will then make the decision if they issue that emergency use authorization which really could happen at any point. Within 24 hours, Operation Warp Speed says distribution starts of this vaccine. Simultaneously, an advisory committee to the CDC is going to meet on Friday and Sunday to vote uh, to officially recommend this vaccine if it gets the green light from the FDA. And Kelly, we could then be looking at the first Americans getting vaccinated next week. So it could, Meg, be as quick as this afternoon that the whole FDA goes ahead with that emergency use authorization when this thing starts getting distributed tomorrow? Uh, Well, that would be probably pretty quick. It could conceivably be this afternoon. Experts I've talked with are guessing perhaps tomorrow so that the FDA can take into consideration what the committee says today. Got it. Got it. All right. Meg, thank you so much. We're getting close. We appreciate it. Our Meg Terrell with the very latest on this whole process playing out. Coming up with the Airbnb IPO taking the spotlight as we continue to wait for its opening, we'll hear from the CEO of one of its biggest competitors, Booking.com. What he says is its biggest advantage over Airbnb. The stock indicated to open at $150 right now after pricing at 68 Plus, Bank of America says there are potential headwinds ahead for the red-hot home builders. Why and who's best and worst position going forward? We'll ask. Stay with us. We're back in a couple. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bank of America's latest COVID housing impact survey shows that that so-called urban exodus of people moving from cities to suburbs may be something of an urban legend. I don't believe it. For more, I'm joined by John Lavallo. He's the home builders analyst at Bank of America Securities. John, I mean, where we are, it's it's been blowing up uh, with demand. But I take your point. Look, our Robert Frank has a story today about new leases in Manhattan having their strongest November in 12 years. So tell us what you think is going on here. Yeah. Hey, Kelly, thank you for having me. So it's interesting. We ran a survey for about six months. First three months of the survey, there was very little differential between urban dwellers and, uh, and, and suburban dwellers in terms of their responses. Most really didn't cite a desire to move because of COVID. It was around 18%. More recently, that's changed pretty dramatically where suburban dwellers moved up to about 34% saying COVID had an impact while the urban counterparts only had about 20%, so very little move. So the entire move up has been from suburban folks. What I think is happening, frankly, the largest or most overwhelming response was people looking for a slower pace of living. Now, you would think that that might correspond more to city dwellers moving out, but it was really more on, on the suburban side. So I think that, you know, look, there's a lot of great things about living in the city. As a vaccine starts coming into, you know, more into a reality here, I think you could see even less folks wanting to move out of the city. Yeah. So Roberts, uh, when he spoke with brokers, they also said there's a couple of factors here in terms of all of a sudden this surge in, in leasing demand in Manhattan. They said millennials living with their parents, quote, can't take it anymore. want <laughs> to move back to the city and suburbanites who couldn't resist selling. I mean, this is such a seller's market right now. If you're selling, maybe you go into the city and, and you're renting for a little while. So let's boil this down to what it means for investors. You know, how does it affect the home builders trade, which has been a huge performer, but one of the more controversial ones right now as to how much, you know, I would say how much legs it has, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's the fundamentals are still incredibly strong for the home building industry. We have certain concerns about the stocks themselves, given the fact that home price appreciation is moving up pretty markedly. Uh, interest rates could continue to creep up here from here. Um, and, and frankly, the stocks have had tremendous, you know, a tremendous run and the comps are going to be very challenging. The way we think you have to play the home builders at this point is you need to be focused on builders that can go into an existing market and compete with the existing stock of home homes that are in that market. And existing home supply is very low. It's about two and a half months across the country. So you need a builder like DR Horton, which is our top pick, that actually can compete on a price from a price standpoint and an availability standpoint with the existing stock in, in, in each market. And I think that that's where the most need-based buyers are. So if things get affordability starts running okay. off a little bit, uh, I think that you know the need-based is, is important. So if, if DR Horton is maybe best positioned to take advantage of these trends playing out, who does that m make you think twice about? I mean, is there anybody you have a sell rating on here? So Toll Brothers is, is um, our sell rating in the group right now. Very well-run company, very well-positioned company. However, we think that the luxury buyer um, is it's a little bit less, um, you know, it's, or a little bit more discretionary, I should say. So if things get tough from an affordability standpoint, that buyer may say, hey, you know what, maybe we'll delay for a little while. 
Whereas someone who may need just got married or just had children and need more space, I think that that buyer will buy less home, but they'll probably continue to buy a home. All right. And there's toll uh, down about 4% over the past week. Uh, John, thanks for joining us today and appreciate your thoughts, especially uh, as out of consensus as they are right now. John Lavallo. Thank you. Still ahead, the Restoration Hardware CEO has some tough words for his retail competitors. We have those details in just a moment. And we are awaiting Airbnb's first trade. It has not opened yet. Uh, the latest indication is $148, just about a penny below that number. Uh, again, a price at 68 last night. Uh, so that's just more than doubling. We're going to keep an eye on it after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Markets repairing their earlier losses. The Dow had fallen by as much as 192 points. It's down 41 right now. The Nasdaq was down 1%. It's now positive by half a percent. The S&P is down about a point. Let's check the sectors. Energy, what a strong performer that one's been lately. It's once again in the leadership today. Oil uh, messing around that $50 a barrel mark. There's energy up 2.5%. Um, on the flip side, industrials and materials are the biggest laggards right now. So kind of difficult to draw some broader conclusions from that. One area that has been taking off, according to a new article on CNBC Pro, small caps. And strategists say they're poised to keep climbing even after their monster run. The Russell 2000 is up 24 percent since November. And strategists think it will lead the broader market higher next year. It's up a little less than 1 percent today. You can read more at CNBC.com pro. Let's look at shares of Airbnb still awaiting their open. Remember, there's only two and a half hours left on Wall Street at this point. We got to close at 4 p.m. It's now 1.30 Eastern time. It priced at $68 last night. The highest it got was around 155, maybe 156, 157. And we're just a little bit below that level right now. Let's bring in Jared Shojian. He's an analyst at Wolf Research who has initiated. Oh, now actually, I'm sorry. Airbnb is down to 145 right now. So we'll keep an eye on that. It should open at any moment. Uh, Jared Shojian is an analyst at Wolf Research who has initiated coverage of Airbnb with an outperform. That was last week. His price target was 135. Wall Street Journal reporter Maureen Farrell, uh, Farrell also joins us. She's been closely following Airbnb, DoorDash, and all the others racing to the public markets. And it's great to have you both here. Maureen, I'll start with you. Welcome back. And what are, what are your conclusions about this enormous uh, first day move? First day is not quite the right word. It's the, it's the difference between what the insiders are getting and what the public's getting with DoorDash and Airbnb. Exactly. This pop is sort of inconceivable yesterday. I mean, we've just watched this company run up and up and up. I mean, a month or two ago, the idea that they were going to go at $30 billion was seen as somewhat of a victory. I mean, they back in March, Brian Chesky was out raising money at double digit interest rates to kind of save the company. So the fact that he was sort of back to where he was before the pandemic, 30 billion was looking like a good um, IPO. And the fact that it's, I mean, going to be near a hundred billion today is sort of something. Something is going on. I mean, there's there's clearly excitement around this company, but there's also, I mean, you've been talking about it today. I mean, just crazy euphoria around the IPO market in general. Yeah, and Jared, I want to bring you in on that note uh, again. About one hundred and forty-five dollars, the latest indication price for Airbnb. Let's call that a ninety billion market cap. When you initiated your outperform last week with 135, that was a year-end 2021 target. So why are we pulling all of that forward to today? What does that valuation tell you? And if you put an outperform on it before, what do you do with it now? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. You know, we, we initiated last night 
Um, you know, I think ultimately this is a really attractive investable story in both the near term and the long term. In the near term, you have a, a really good leisure travel, pent up leisure travel recovery. And Airbnb is really one of the rare large cap names, I think, to play that theme without having to deal with, you know, the business travel risk that you have at Marriott and Hilton and, and some of the other large hotel seacourts. And then over the longer term, you have a really good uh, secular story where, you know, Airbnb is going to be a market share taker over the longer term. And I think COVID-19 has probably accelerated that opportunity where work from home, frankly, becomes really work from any home. So, you know, ultimately, the way we look at this is this is a multi-year story. Uh, we, you know, obviously, the stock hasn't even opened yet. We don't, we don't know how it's going to trade here, but we like it over right, the long term. Right, but Jared, term. that's my point. Yeah, everything that you're saying was true last night. Nothing's changed between last night and today. It's not, it's not like the vaccine news broke between last night and today. It's not like Congress passed the stimulus package between last night and today. It's not like, you know, I'm sure nothing's changed between last night and today, and it's gone from a $47 billion company to a $90 billion company. So what does that have to do with any of this commentary? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we titled our initiation Dream Big because ultimately I don't think anybody really understands how big this company could become, right? This is a company that has 2% of their TAM, 2% market share of the the TAM. We don't know how big the margins could be. We don't know the adjacent spaces opportunity, whether that's experiences or getting into the OTA field or, you know, really the the brand is powerful to where they can leverage that and, and they can probably find other additional revenue sources from that. So I think that's what you know, the market's also looking at us. We just don't know how big this could become over the longer term. Maureen, both Airbnb and DoorDash use the hybrid auction process. It, look, it, if it was meant to get them top dollar, it certainly didn't do that. Um, what, what do you think the real purpose of that was? I mean, it's fascinating that you say that. I mean, it was really the idea was to mitigate a pop. And these are huge companies. So the fact that they're popping, I mean, it's a lot of money to essentially double the price. What I was hearing about these hybrid auction processes was that it was easy. You could see the demand above the price range that they would put out there. It was a little bit easier to see the granularity of what people would put in orders. Clearly, it hasn't helped. I mean, it's, it's pretty big for any company to double, especially one at this size. So I think, I mean, there's a question of, you know, how well how good of a job are they doing versus the regular process? If this is if this is the outcome that we're seeing and all the money left on the table, what you're saying, the, the discrepancy between what retail investors will probably pay today and what long what the people who got it this last night. But also, yeah, it's, there's also one other question that you can only raise it so much over the course of this of a week and a half roadshow. So they the underwriters basically only had one chance to raise the price. And then you could only really price 20% on top of that. So in the case of Airbnb, they left a couple of dollars on the table above this first price raise range. Still, it was obviously wildly off. But the question is, you know, yeah, they and both, sorry, go ahead, Kelly. No, no, no please go ahead, finish the thought. I was going to say just, uh, you know, in both companies, if you have to, ask the question, I mean, what is real? I mean, is this a true valuation? Is this something going on in the market over the next day or two? So I think there is at least something that I think both companies have expressed to their underwriters and others is that they were a little wary of totally pricing up to where demand is because they want, you know, especially Airbnb, the next couple of months could be pretty 
bumpy for them. I think there's a ton of optimism about where they're going to go in the travel industry once everything rebounds. But, you know, depending on what the lockdowns are like in the next few months, I mean, revenue could still really dip. And it, Jared, before we move on, and we'll take a quick break, we'll come back to this, so guys, don't go too far. But what would be the price point at which you say, okay, this has just gone from, you know, big pie in the sky, big opportunity excitement to, you know, way too, this way too rich evaluation? Yeah, well, I think when you look around at the, at the tech space and you look at some of these high growth names, I mean, there's certainly precedent for you know, these, these names trading at, at bigger multiples, you know, whether obviously there's differences with, with Snowflake and Snap and some of these companies. But, you know, obviously we're seeing really high multiples in the tech space. And, you know, if investors want to be really bullish, um, I, I think with a name like Airbnb, you can probably justify probably any valuation you want, frankly. Because, again, I, I would just say that we don't know how big this company can be over the next right. five years, 10 years, it's 15 open. years. Jared, thank you. Stand by. Airbnb, the Nasdaq official open price, $146 a share. Again, a price at 68 bucks last night. Let's get some quick reaction here. Dear Jabosa, Leslie Picker, Mike Santoli, all standing by. Michael, what are your thoughts? Well, obviously, uh, you know, there were not enough inputs among the casual retail investor that recognizes this name, knows it's ubiquitous. It's an app with a tremendous uh, potential market. And that's the buyers today at more than double the IPO price, which itself was much higher than the initial range. A hundred billion dollars for a company that did less than five billion in revenue in its peak year 2019. Nobody cares about that. One sign of how much this was just people at home getting excited for the stock of the day is that this morning there was massive options volume in this ABB, which is the big European uh, construction engineering company. People thought it was Airbnb. It's not. It's been listed for a long time. So that tells you what, who's setting the marginal price at the open here. Leslie, is this one of the latest uh, openings ever that we've seen for a, a company of this size for an IPO like this? Uh, as, as far as I can recall, I don't remember anything getting this close to 2 p.m. for an opening, but I think it speaks to just what Mike was saying, the fact that they had to pair these trades. They had to find uh, a buyer for every seller, uh, but really they just had to find some sellers out there. From what I'm hearing, there was a tremendous amount of buying interest. You can see that on all the different retail websites where this is just one of the top traded um, companies today. We saw something similar with DoorDash yesterday, there's tremendous retail interest in these names. They've become a bigger part of the market lately, which makes them a bigger part of the IPO market, which makes it really, really difficult to price these things. We've seen this time and again in 2020, where that marginal buyer is the retail investor. And it's difficult for people who are pricing these deals to really understand what the retail investor is trying to pay, is wanting to pay. Not to mention, you know, Airbnb, there's been talk about this company going public, I think going back like six years. We started to hear chatter about, well, is Airbnb going to go public next year or, or this year, or next month or whatever it is? Uh, it's finally here. People have been waiting a long time for this company uh, to be able to trade this company. For sure. And Deirdre, again, we were just speaking with uh, Jared Shoji, and he's an analyst at Wolf Research. His price target, he had an overweight. He initiated coverage last night, put a $135 year-end 2021 price target on it. Again, Airbnb's trading at 152 right now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I keep thinking, you know, a hundred billion dollar plus market cap for a company that doesn't have any assets. I know we ran through this earlier um, that it's now valued much, much higher than the big hotel chains. But there's a key part of that S1 that I keep going back to, and that's that 90 percent of Airbnb's traffic comes organically. And that puts it sort of at a level beyond the Expedia booking holdings that we see that rely and pay so much money to Google to get their bookings. It was kind of amazing to me to hear Glenn Fogel this morning um, on Squawk on the Street say that his own daughter books Airbnb. So this is really sort of an indication of this brand strength. And as Mike alluded to, the excitement from investors around this name. And to Leslie's point, too, yes, at least six years this company has been talked about going public. It's amazing to me how the timing has worked out. And we thought uh, that it was an $18 billion company just a few months ago. Michael, now that it's gone public and it's gone so this way with this kind of pop following on DoorDash, uh, what's the narrative going to be around these listings and from everything from fairness to price to process? Well, it's a seller's market, no doubt. And even the sellers feel like they maybe can't even uh, be aggressive enough to accommodate this demand. So it's probably going to elicit a lot more deals. Uh, people may be going to try uh, to, to get a little bit more uh, aggressive on the pricing side of things. And I, I don't really buy into the left money on the table thing. It, it really presupposes this idea that last night you could have told us what the opening price was going to be today. And you want to talk about a direct listing? Slack was a direct listing. It never traded at that first price until it got acquired years later. So it's not as if there's any one magic perfect way to price these things when when you have such fevered demand out there among, you know, a cohort of investors that you can't actually get in a room, get on a conference call and decide what they're truly willing to not just pay, but buy and hold the stock for a little while as opposed to flipping it. We just don't know. And look, I think we all have great respect for the wisdom of the market and when it can see through a lot of the short term and, and get and seize on a big opportunity. But you have these other examples. Like we thought that's what they did with Uber and Uber spent a year and a half trading right, below where right. it closed on its first day. And finally, Leslie, as Airbnb trades around $160 uh, as we watch these opening trades play out, you know, Dan Primack was making this point today as well. But from now on, these IPOs, let's remember, happened in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to basically do virtual presentations to their investor base uh, to the extent that these are viewed as successes. And they will be. Um, that is going to reshape how these companies continue to pitch themselves. Yeah, I, I saw that note from uh, Primack in Axios today about just the fact that, you know, you can do these things virtually. It's more efficient. You can speak with more investors and, and have more of a, a dialogue with people leading up to your IPO. It's fascinating. And, and Mike brings up Uber. I have to wonder if the leaders of the companies that went public in 2019 uh, that had down rounds, that saw, you know, muted performance on their first day of trading, if they're looking at what's going on this year and a year that by all other measures you would think would be so challenged for a company to go public. And then you see moves like this and you see kind of upsizing deals based on raising the price ranges and then pricing well above those ranges. True. You know, I bet they're kind of sitting there Leslie. scratching their heads thinking, hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, key, would have been key nice. difference, though, Maureen, when I was give you thinking the last... about this. Go ahead, Deirdre. Sorry, Callie. Well, I was just saying key difference. When we look at Uber and Lyft, they were losing billions and billions mm -hmm. of dollars. And you see Uber now trading near $95 billion. I have to say, a big distinction is that from DoorDash and Airbnb, we have at least seen some level of profitability. And that makes it different.
That's definitely yep, true. They've had several profitable quarters. Maureen, we'll give you the last word here. Um, does this become a 2020 phenomenon? As Leslie has mentioned, you know, fund managers looking to generate alpha really right up until year end. If we flip the calendar to 2021, is it a totally different landscape or do you think this is going to go on for some time? It's hard to tell how long this can go on for because there's such euphoria. But I think to the point of the pricing today, I spoke with a, a big IPO buyer earlier in the week who was looking at Airbnb about to be priced at, say, $40 billion. And he told me it makes no sense. It, it's, that doesn't totally make sense on a um, multiple basis. But how can I not buy into it? It's going to work. Everything's working. So who knows how long that's going to go on for, but it just seems to be there's a psychology here that it's feeding on itself and it's sort of detached from fundamentals. So we'll see how long this goes on for. Yeah, but if he was a, lukewarm, uh, lukewarm yeah, and, if he was lukewarm back then, he's, he's loving it now. <laughs> Airbnb trading around $158 right now. Finally, finally open for trading. Guys, thank you all so much. Deirdre Bosa, Leslie Picker, Mike Santoli, and Maureen Farrell of The Wall Street Journal. Coming up, we'll keep an eye on these trades. We'll also talk about RH CEO's Tough Talk for Retailers and one firm seeing the sun setting on home rentals, why that could be a headwind for Airbnb in the future. We'll have more on this all in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple other stories that should be on your radar today. It is rapid fire. And here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Seema Modi, and we welcome back Mike Santoli. We actually want to start with this booking boom coming off the Airbnb IPO just moments ago. Uh, meanwhile, Seema spoke with the CEO of one of their biggest rivals earlier today, Booking Holdings, of course, CEO Glenn Fogel. He said demand is still highest for hotels, but they're also ready to meet the need for home rentals. Take a listen. I do believe that happened with this pandemic is move forward. People who had never thought about being in a home, they now believe that our home is the place to stay sometimes. So they're going to they're gonna look through next year, a year after they're going to say, not sure, home or hotel. And they're going to then make a decision. The great thing about booking.com is that we have the greatest, greatest uh, list of both homes and hotels. So we're, we're very well positioned for this. Of course, sounding a positive note there, Seema, but why are some analysts actually calling for a deep freeze in the home rental market this winter? Yeah, with all the enthusiasm generated by Airbnb's IPO, Kelly, it is worth noting that home rental demand, yes, it's been stronger than hotels during the pandemic, but since the summer, the rate of bookings has actually declined. If you take a look at earnings from some of the other big travel operators, booking holdings, case in point, uh, alternative accommodations, which known as home rentals, accounted for a smaller proportion of total bookings in the third quarter versus the second. And the expectation is that when this vaccine comes out and the timeline continues to improve, that over time that consumers will want to have an option, Kelly, to either book a home or a hotel. And if that's the case, then booking, one would say, is better positioned to benefit from that because they're not just in one area of this market. They are diversified. They have that size, that scale and that breadth of travel offerings. Robert, what are your thoughts on that call, but also uh, some of the dynamics playing out as you've already been covering between the kind of urban versus suburban markets, the way that's already starting to shift as the pandemic goes on and the, the way these IPOs have gone the last couple of days? Yeah, if we could just step back a minute, the way these IPOs have gone these past couple of days. So we started the morning with jobless claims up 853,000. And then on the other end of the K, we have three billionaires as a result of this IPO this afternoon that uh, Brian Chesky and his two co-founders 
each going to be worth more than $10 billion. That's after the three DoorDash founders yesterday, each worth about $3 billion. So the di- it's not just a disconnect, it's different worlds right now between the capital economy and all this money that's looking for a home and the rest of the economy, which is struggling with joblessness and, and the pandemic. So I don't know where all this leads in terms of tensions or, or politics, but I, I just think there's going to be a long-term impact of this incredible euphoria we're seeing in the market with these IPOs and what's actually happening in the economy. And Mike, a final word on that. Again, Airbnb shares priced at 68, opened at 146 and are trading in the 150s right now. Well, the most amazing thing to me, it's a side story, but the fact that Expedia is only up less than 2% last I looked. It owns VRBO. It's got kind of a lot of this stuff bundled together. VRBO, of course, a direct comp uh, to Airbnb. Different scales, all the rest of it, but it trades less than three times revenue. And so it shows you the market just wants the new, shiny, pure play thing uh, and not necessarily just a general exposure uh, to these trends, however they may play out. Yep. Great point. I know plenty of people who use Verbo more than they use Airbnb these days. All right, we'll leave Airbnb for the time being. Move on and talk about this downgrade of Best Buy today. Downgrade to sell at Goldman for their 2021 retail outlook. They're calling Best Buy one of the best-run retailers in America, but downgrading it on valuation concerns. Best Buy shares are down nearly 10% over the past month. Goldman says they're going to have really tough comps moving forward as lockdowns lift and the retail playing field evens out. They're down about 2% today. Their same-store sales were up 23% in the third quarter. Online sales up 174%. I mean, Robert, again, this is this pivot we're talking about. We're going to start talking about you know, as we get back towards normal, what are the stocks you no longer want exposure to? Yeah, look, at Best Buy is a great company. And the note mentions that great execution. They've got good market share. There are two things about this year that may not be repeatable next year. One is that while they were open during the pandemic, a lot of stores were closed. So they gained some market share. They may not be able to repeat next year. And also, a lot of their gains were in what they call the multi-year durability of electronics. In other words, you're not going to buy a laptop this year and then buy another one next year. There was a lot of sort of homeschool equipment that needed to be purchased, people buying PlayStations and other gaming equipment that they won't buy next year. So those are the two trends that, along with the share of wallet issue that's going to change, I think could weigh on them. And that was the reason for this downgrade. Seema, what are your thoughts? Because there's two schools of thought on this. Some say the pandemic winners are kind of secular winners. They're going to keep winning. And others say there's going to be a hangover. Even a company like Clorox, where where how much restocking are we going to be doing in our households of Clorox wipes for the next few years? Yeah, and that's the biggest question. What are the trends that will continue on even post this pandemic or even as that vaccine gets rolled out? I think for Best Buy, it may be best in class when it comes to electronics. Uh, but, it may, but it's worth wondering whether going into next year, if we get back on the road, we're not spending as much time at home. Do we need to continue to invest? and electronics, if you have invested in that second monitor for your home office, iPads for the kids for e-learning, or just better speakers for that Netflix and chill experience, how much more do you really need if the expectation is that we are spending less time at home next year? Yeah, although, Mike, if you get a Chromebook, you're going to have to replace it every year, in my experience. <laughs> hey, 100%. Uh, I've been there. Absolutely. And by the way, spending on goods this year, it's way up from 2019. It's on services that it's down. I think this is a general macro theme that's going to run through here. You don't need stuff that you bought this year next year, but you are going to go to the local restaurant. We hope. Yeah, I'm with you. 
Finally, and relatedly, the CEO of RH, Restoration Hardware, some really harsh words for his fellow retailers. Gary Friedman blasted department stores and the e-commerce boom in a shareholder letter last night. They were out with earnings. He said, many retailers have allocated the vast majority of their capital to unnaturally grow their digital business, resulting in shifting, not lifting sales online at greater cost. He says that drives down profit margins, while the physical stores, he says, have been left to rot. He went on to say the truth is most retail stores are archaic windowless boxes that lack any sense of humanity. RH shares down about 3% today despite beating on revenue and earnings. It also had some major supply issues. He said they gave up eight points of demand of revenue growth because they simply couldn't meet the, the supply demand there. Um, Robert, he's right about the experience at a lot of other stores. Yeah, look, I think furniture is different. Restoration hardware is different. When you're buying a $4,000 sheepskin chaise lounge, you want to sit in it, you want to see it, whereas if I'm buying another pair of Lululemon pants that I already own, I don't need to go to the store. So I think for his segment, for his product, it makes sense. Seema? You walk into that restoration hardware store, you instantly gravitate to those plush, soft sofas. You start to paint a picture in your head, which uh, furniture do I need to buy? And it's a very different experience, anecdotally speaking, going into a Macy's floor five and then just seeing endless beds and saying, all right, honey, which one do you want, right? It's just a different experience. <laughs> Last word, Michael. He only has fewer than 100 stores. Okay, he's the exception that proves the rule. He's he's totally right. He says that there's a taste without scale and scale without taste. And he thinks that department stores are scale without taste. And he's been saying that for a while. Yes, he did not mince uh, words all in that regard. But you're right. You've got several hundred, maybe over a thousand stores. You're probably singing a different tune and saying, yeah, if you sell four thousand dollars, what did Robert say? Chase lounges or something. <laughs> it's a different Keeps story. Scared. Guys, thank you all today. Robert Frank, Seema Modi, and Michael Santoli. Closing out Rapid Fire and The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.